Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today for worship. Now, if you want some good news, I encourage you to watch a YouTube show called Some Good News. The anchor of this show is John Krasinski. He was on The Office. He played Jim. It's a good, positive show. He just made it from his house because he wants to show good news to the world at a time when a lot of people could stand to hear it. So uh, it's really been a a great thing to watch. These episodes are very popular on YouTube. Uh, Now, if you didn't know, John Krasinski is married to an actress named Emily Blunt. And Emily Blunt played Mary Poppins last year in Mary Poppins Returns. Maybe you've seen that movie. What's interesting about her preparation for the role of Mary Poppins was that she said, I didn't want to watch the movie from the 1960s. I, I hadn't seen it for 30 years. I just, want, I just read the books of Mary Poppins. And she said, I wanted to find my own version of the character. And as she prepared for the role, she said, I was so impressed with how seemingly unknowable Mary Poppins could be. That, yes, she's fun and she's quirky and she has great choreography and she dances with penguins but there's an aspect of Mary Poppins that's just so completely other she said she's almost unknowable and yet she's also warm and kind and fun and just as quickly as Mary Poppins would appear she would seem to disappear this reminds me of the movie Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you saw, you saw the clip just a second ago of Aslan coming into the shot, and, or leaving, really. And there's an aspect of Aslan, this allegory for Jesus you see in those movies and books, where there's a, that Aslan is, he's approachable, but he's also, you know, as he said, he's, he's not tame, but Aslan is good. That Aslan is, is strong, but there's an aspect of who he is that's just unknowable. And in Isaiah 55, you hear these words that God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says things like, uh, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the theologian Karl Barth said, that God is completely other. There's an unknowable quality of the mind of God. And that's how God should be. I don't want God to be like me. I want God to be God. And the manner in which Jesus shows himself after the resurrection is, again, not what you would expect. It's almost playful in a way. And we're going to see here in Luke 24, the verses will be on the screen right here. You can uh, see this unknowable quality of Jesus and how he interacts with, um, how how he shows himself. So Luke 24, just bring it back on the screen. It's okay if it looks that way. It's fine. Um, As the disciples are walking along. Uh, You see here, on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, 
Jesus himself came near and went with them, but, go next, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. You stop there. Jesus is asking them, what are you discussing? Of course, he knows what they're talking about. But see, this is interesting because Jesus doesn't want to make up their minds for them. And it's the same way with us as people. God wants us to make up our minds for ourselves about who he is and what has happened and the the resurrection and the empty tomb and all of the teachings of God. He, He knows we're not robots. God knows that we can make up our own mind. And so he's not trolling them in this moment, even though it seems that way. But he's saying to them, what are you discussing? And they, they, there they were, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? You can see sarcasm is alive and well in first century Judea. And they, they speak to this stranger like, come on, man. Don't you know what's happened? Everybody knows what's happened. And um, he asked them, what things? Again, Jesus says, what? What are you talking about? What things? The things about Jesus of Nazareth, that, that a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And you can hear in their voice, they're they're sort of saying, we had hoped that he was who he said he was, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe it wasn't what we expected. This wasn't what we thought would happen. Maybe he's not at all who we thought he was. You hear a lot of doubt, despair, sadness in their voices. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, stranger Jesus, stranger at this point still, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Here's a stranger in the road to Emmaus dressing them down, telling them, you're foolish. You don't understand what you're talking about. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Jesus is giving them a master class of Hebrew scripture, and he's still a stranger to these people. And he's telling them exactly about the Messiah, about himself. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. Again, an unknowable quality of God. Jesus does not tell them who he is. He then gives them a master class on Old Testament prophecy. See you later. Walks ahead. How interesting. He just walks ahead of them. And then they say to him, strongly saying stay with us we maybe we kind of like this guy because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over so they went in to stay with them 
And when he was at the table with them, he, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What an incredible account here. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Thinking, you know, we, I, thought, I thought I knew that guy. He seemed, I don't know, I liked that guy. The same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, what an incredible story. We'll push this out of the way. You have to look at a blue screen. We'll, we'll look on this screen instead. What an incredible story, but it makes me think, what is really going on here? What is happening? Was it something supernatural that the Lord was keeping from them? Was it something about the way his post-resurrection body looked that they couldn't recognize Jesus, even though Jesus' mother, Mary, would recognize him almost immediately after the resurrection earlier in that day, even though she initially thought he was the gardener? Was it something about these two disciples, something blocking them from seeing Jesus for who he was? But what awakened them to see this? Was it bread? Do carbs somehow unlock more awareness of the spiritual world? I like bread. But every time I eat bread, I don't see Jesus very much. No, I think the key ingredient were two things in the story. The first one is the active word of God. And then consequently, out of that active word of God, faith is given or unlocked, if you will. So the active word of God. These two disciples were probably Cleopas, as we hear, and then his wife, Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. This Mary is Jesus, uh, the sister of Jesus' mother, so Jesus' aunt, and I would assume his uncle, who lived in Emmaus. These people had followed Jesus for years. They believed in Jesus, and yet they were blinded to the truth of the resurrection. Maybe they were grounded in their despair and their sadness. But the word of God was open to them, and then they were able to see Jesus. Think about this. The living word teaches them the word, and then their eyes are opened. Even for committed disciples of Christ, if you're watching this today and you're a Christian, sometimes we need the word of God to come alongside of us, maybe to rebuke us a little bit, and to show us the truth to wake us up, to be corrected by the word of God. The word scripture means rule, rule of, rule of life in some ways. That it is a guide for us. The word of God does this because God loves us. As you see, Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord corrects those that he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. The word of God is absolute truth. It's light shining in darkness. And sometimes we do take it for granted. But without what the word of God tells us, we would be lost. 
we wouldn't know anything about the Trinitarian nature of God. We wouldn't know about the fallenness, the sinfulness of humanity, although it's pretty obvious to us, even outside of Scripture, that we're a people in need of help. We wouldn't know the fullness of the grace of God in the midst of our sin. We wouldn't even know about the person of Jesus Christ without the Word of God. The Word of God is literally light shining in the darkness, especially in this Emmaus story. And for, th- for one, this is a great reminder to marinate on Scripture, to let it infect our minds and our bodies and our thinking, because Jesus teaches Old Testament Scripture here as literal and authoritative. And out of this word of God being proclaimed, it's the key to unlocking their faith, to their eyes being opened, to them coming to the realization. That's the grace of God helping them because Jesus rebukes them, but he's also patient and kind. And he stands there and he takes the time to teach them. What a beautiful picture of the heart of God, this unknowable heart of God, that who he is is just so unique. But without the word of God, without the power of the proclaimed word of God, it awakens us to even know God, to know the truth of the resurrection, and to have saving faith, as John Wesley would teach. So it's the active word of God that then out of that comes faith. And you see that faith is so, so important. Hebrews 11.6 shows us that without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now this frame of mind these two disciples are in as they're walking on this road of Emmaus, it's not an attitude of faith. It's an attitude of despair. It's an attitude of sadness. They're not hopeful about the future. They're they're crushed. This, I will be raised on the third day prophecy that Jesus gave, that they probably heard him teach about. They did not think about that. His specific promise about that was not really accepted. It was seen as not something really believable, as something really concrete, as something really to hang your hat on, something to anticipate. So they were sad. They stood in the middle of the road, and they were sad. Someone once said to me one time, do you know what's in the middle of the road? Dead possums. It's true. It's true. They were only looking at their circumstance, and they weren't trusting the promises of the word of God. And I'm not judging them, because if I was in their shoes, I'd probably feel the same way. And so they had to be graciously shown and taught by Jesus. And then they recognize him and their faith is opened, if you will. Hebrews 11.1 shows us that faith is the reality for what we hope for. Faith is the evidence of things we cannot see. It's like cause and effect. I can't see the wind but I see the effects of the wind. We don't always see Jesus, but I see the effects of Jesus on every converted life. Faith is not weakness. Faith is actually strength. 
For a lot of people today, especially those who are unchurched people, people that have no religious affiliation, maybe that's you watching right now. We're glad to have you too. But for a lot of people that have no belief system, they think that faith is something for religious people. But in reality, every single human being on the face of the earth practices faith every day. Every day. This is an old cliche, but you trust that the couch you're sitting on is going to hold you up, right? We all put our hope on and trust in something. We all lean on something. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your own abilities. Maybe you have faith in money. Maybe you have faith in the government. Maybe you have faith, and you can go on and on. But you're trusting in something all the time. Faith is not an unnatural way to look at the world. Quite the opposite. Faith is not a weakness. Faith is a strength. And here's what I mean. Because if, if the unseen spiritual world that does exist, if the unseen spiritual world is the real world, and it is, then faith is not just a choice you make. Faith is the natural and expected response you should have in order to access this unseen spiritual world. Here's what I mean. Many times people would say that Jesus' many healings, all the miraculous things he did, people would say, oh, those were supernatural events in a natural world. But I think that statement gives our world way too much credit. In reality, Jesus' healings are the only natural thing in a very unnatural, demonized, and hurting and fallen world. In the same way, faith, it's not just blind trust. It's not just naive optimism. Faith is not unnatural. Faith is actually the most reasonable and natural choice to make in an unnatural world. But I know that it is hard. In the world in which we're living right now, it is very difficult to walk in an attitude of faith all the time. Des despair and faith, they will always be in tension with each other, especially during difficult seasons of life. And of course, in the days that we're in right now, it's easy to walk in despair instead of walking in faith. Because if you focus only on the news right now, you're going to be gripped with despair very quickly. I spent some time last week watching a 15-minute video of uh, an ER nurse in New York City giving details about how they're treating COVID-19 patients. And my heart was gripped with despair as I heard her basically say, there's no cure for this, so we really help the best we can. We put them on oxygen, and we hope their bodies just pull through. And it was very scary stuff to listen to, but I appreciated her being honest and sharing this with people so that we would understand a bit more what's going on, especially in New York City, who we do pray for daily. So it, when I hear those stories, it's easy to, to feel despair. It's easy to feel despair when I hear about 25 million people out of work. And if that's you, we pray for you as well right now. The economy, teetering, bailout money, seemingly endless, panic buying, no toilet paper, 
the sales of bidets are skyrocketing, apparently. Millions of people, though, are putting their hope and their trust and their faith in lots of other stuff. And their hearts are full of despair because their hope and trust is not ultimately in Christ. And as the body of Christ, we're going to feel despair. That's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not us. That is not who we are. We are not a people of despair. We are a people of hope, of eternal hope. That yes, we are aware of the situation in which we find ourselves. And we will understand it. And so that we can more adequately respond in love and hope and healing to the world around us. The world needs to see the church as a people of hope and faith and belief that the Savior we follow is still healing people today, and he is. And so we should refuse to be gripped by despair. As 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than is in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, the Apostle Paul is teaching about death. And he's basically saying, do not grieve as those that have no hope. Because we are not those people. You used to be that person. But you're not that person today. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. So that you may not grieve as those to who you have no hope. As others do that have no hope. We are not those people. We are not a people that are racked with despair. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? That nothing will separate you and I from the love of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross and being resurrected on the third day. And God needs us to be a people of hope. A people who have the active word of God enlivening our minds, expanding our faith, and growing in that way. As again, despair is not an attitude or posture of faith. And this is a question, multiple rhetorical questions. As we, you and I, walk along this post-resurrection road with Jesus... Will we recognize Christ when he walks alongside us? Are we allowing the word of God to open our eyes to the truth and give us faith? Do we have faith to see him, to hear him, or are we only focusing on the despair of the day? In other words, are you focused on the death of Jesus or the life of Jesus? Are you focused on the grave being empty or not? Are you looking at the past only? Or are we looking to the present and to the future with hope? Because we stand on the truth of God's word, whose promises are unfailing. And just as those prophecies about Jesus came true, over a hundred of them, all fulfilled in one man, impossible odds. As all of those promises came true about Jesus, so too all of the other promises that God gives in his word will never pass away. As Jesus said, the words contained in this book will never pass away. See, with God, while God is God, in his ways, thankfully, 
are not our ways. There's an attitude and a posture of who God is that seems to be unknowable. And yet God can also be intimately knowable at the same time. Because God's heart for you and me is love. And he longs to know us intimately in the power of his Holy Spirit. To be new creations in Christ. To have the Holy Spirit indwell us. To have eternal life that begins not when we die, but in this very moment. By faith. By faith. And yes, the promises of God are better than we can even imagine. When Romans 8, 9 through 13 says things like this. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a simple promise. So easy that a child can understand. That if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that he is raised from the dead, you will be saved. What a promise of God. For he says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. And if you're watching this today and you feel a great deal of shame, I want you to know that God will separate your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. That God forgets your sin. He forgets your past. He forgives you. He loves you. And the word of God teaches us this, that in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. What he's saying is that in Christ, there's neither black nor white, rich or poor, The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No matter who we are, God loves you as you are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And the same Lord of all is generous to all who call on him. As he says again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And indeed, this is the word of God teaching us, opening our eyes to the truth, that this is the truth. This is the reality in which we live, that we are a people in need of rescue. And the word of God teaches us this because he loves you and me. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. This is truth. The tomb is empty. This is truth. Jesus is alive. This is truth. My life and your life and billions of other people's lives point to that fact. It is evidence that he is raised from the dead because of what we know in our hearts we've experienced by faith in him. Faith is the most natural, reasonable attitude we could take in an unnatural and unreasonable world. Have faith in him, not in your circumstance. As you stand in the middle of this road we all walk on, do not despair. Do not let your hearts be overcome with sadness, but know that he lives. Remember that we have an unfailing hope in the Son of God. And may the word of God open your eyes and my eyes in the weeks and days to come. And may the Lord grow our faith to see how he can continue to use us in the world. I'd be honored to pray with you. Let us pray. God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that moves within us and around us and through us, teaching us the truth of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that you take the time to speak your word, to speak truth to us, to show us who you are. And I pray for anyone watching here and now this very moment that doesn't know where their hope is. They don't have peace with God. They're overcome with shame 
with guilt, with sadness. Lord, I pray they would know that your word says for them not to walk in that place any longer, that you have come as light in darkness to pull us out. And that faith is not weakness, but it is strength. So give us faith to trust you more this week. Help us to remember that on the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath. Till that stone was moved for good, for the lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, and the angels stood in awe. For the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. For every soul, every life that needs restoration, Lord Jesus, resurrect them at this time. May we put our hope and our trust and our faith in the Son of God. For your promises are steadfast and secure. O King of kings and Lord of lords, we worship you, God. 